Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning. I'm glad to see you today. Thank you for being here. Let me invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, would you take it open with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 10. John 10, we're going to begin in verse 11. Let me introduce the message to you this way. The question, who is Jesus, in my estimation is the most pivotal and vital question that anyone has ever asked. It's a if Jesus is a good example or if he's a, uh, a religious instructor alone, then man, I'm telling you, he was really good at that and he's worthy of our attention. I mean, we ought to pay attention because he's done a great job at those things. But now if in fact he is, as the Bible claims, the unique son of God, and if in fact he is the exclusive means that one gains right standing with a holy God in heaven, then he's not only worthy of our attention, he's worthy of our lives. Now we've seen in John's gospel to this point, <clears throat> three different I am statements. And today we look at the fourth of seven. And if you take any one of those statements by themselves, you get an incomplete picture, an imperfect metaphor or analogy of who Jesus is. But by his design, when you take one and you lay it on top of another and you weave these different pictures of self-revelation together, you get a pretty good portrait of just who in fact it is we worship when we name the name Jesus. And I want us to unpack one of those. Now, one of the things I've not told you about as we looked at this, uh, this study on uh, I am's is the Greek word that are the Greek words. There's actually two of them that go with that. It's the I am in the Greek is the word ego, I, I, me which is uh, am, okay? So, ego, I, me. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but except in the original language, it's the direct crossover for the very, the very special Hebrew covenant name of God. When, uh, when Moses asked God in the burning book, who shall I say sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. They'll know. Now, the God's covenant name was... Uh, a personal connection point between God's people and himself. It was so precious, so revered, so unique, so uh, up here that they would not even say it nor write it. They might read it, but they'd not say it nor write it. It was, uh, it, was, it was one that they knew. They would substitute words for it, but they wouldn't do it because it was so, so here. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the doorway for the sheep. He's teaching a sermon inside of a sermon. He's connected the dots and he's identifying himself as the great I am, as the unique son of God. Now, here's, you may say, how do you know that, Chris, honestly? Well, whenever Jesus claimed to be God, they tried to kill him which they did regularly in the scriptures. If you look through the gospels, you'll see that as Jesus makes these claims that the religious leaders said, it's impossible, how can he claim to be God? And they would pick up stones to stone him with. 
They knew what he was saying. He knew what he was saying. And it's important that you and I know what he was saying. As we look at this fourth metaphor, which kind of picks up on where we were last week, I want you to see with me that Jesus identifies himself now as the good shepherd. John 10, we're going to begin in verse 11. And can I invite you, if you're able and willing, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God? John 10, beginning in verse 11. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus speaking says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they'll become one flock with one shepherd. And for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Just pause right there with me. And would you pray? Father, even in these moments, would you help us to understand the very truth of your word? Lord, we'll confess we're 2,000 years removed from this teaching. And we're running thin on sheep and shepherds in this room. So help us not get lost in the metaphor, but to understand specifically what you're speaking to us, how you would have us to understand this metaphor, this analogy of who your son is. And then I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we see you as you are, we'll respond as we ought. So may our response bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. And uh, hey, I want to share with you three aspects or features or attributes or characteristics. You insert the word, but I want to show you three things on the description of who is the good shepherd. Three features of that. Now, if you'd like to follow along on an outline for that, you can do that on the church app. If you don't have the church app, you could get it from your, uh, from your app store, uh, whether you're uh, saved and you're using an Apple device or you're using one of the other ones. We actually make it available on all of them. And uh, I'm just kidding. Some of you that's going to hit in just a second. But anyway, the, uh, but yeah, it's available to you. And by the way, you'd be able to keep up with the notes on things like that, share prayer requests. There's a number of things you can do on the app that's available to you for free. Or if, you're, if apps are against your religion, that's fine too. You could simply text the word notes to the number that you see on the screen. We'll send you a link to your device and you'll have an outline where you can follow along. Three features of this identification, the good shepherd that I want you to see. Notice with me, first of all, the sacrifice of the good shepherd, the sacrifice of the good shepherd. Now the verses I just read continue an imagery that we've already looked at in verses 1 to 10. Last week, uh, Jesus spoke of, a, uh, of a being the door to the sheep, the door of the sheepfold. And we learned last week that the sheepfold was in fact a barrier placed up in the wilderness that had two purposes. One, it, it brought safety and security for the sheep because it kept predators out and it contained the sheep within. It served both purposes in that it kept the end 
enemies, those that would attack the sheep, kept them at bay, and that it would keep the sheep from wandering off and just and becoming lost or destroyed or, or any of these other things. So it was, it was a sheepfold out there. And then Jesus used that analogy to say that he was the door of the sheep because oftentimes that sheepfold, it wasn't controlled by an electronic gate or something of that nature. It was in fact secured oftentimes the shepherd in charge of the sheepfold would simply lay down in front of the sheepfold at night while the sheep were sleeping. And, and he, would, he would be there as a protector. If a sheep was going to run away, it would have to step on the shepherd and wake him up. If a predator was going to come in through the door, it'd have to step over the shepherd. So he made himself a barrier that guarded entrance into and protected them from coming out. He was the door for the sheep. Jesus picks up right on that same analogy and identifies himself here in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now this phrase, if you like to write down things in your Bible or underline or highlight or things of that nature, I do, by the way. Some folks think, well, it's a sin to mark in my Bible. I understand where you're coming from. I think it's a bigger problem to forget what you've read. So if you looked at my Bible, you'd say, well, how do we get one that's so multicolored like that? It's blue and green and yellow and, and lots of orange because I put orange on all the really important things that really speak to me. You can figure out why. And uh, it's got all of these different fancy colors there. Why do you do that? Because there's some things that you don't want to miss. If you're somebody who highlights in your Bible or highlights in an app or something of that nature, that phrase lays down his life is a significant phrase. It's used five times in these eight verses. And it has a deeper meaning. In other words, there's something buried deep within that that we're going to learn. That Jesus is not just the one who blocks the entrance. Uh, scholar D.A. Carson said that this is the, one of the clearest pictures of the foreshadowing of Jesus' substitutionary atonement on behalf of the sheep. In other words, to lay down his life, he's not talking about Jesus catching a siesta. Jesus says, when I lay down my life, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about giving my life as a substitute for those whose life is demanded of them for their rebellion against God. And he says, I lay down my life. He's using it. By the way, first, it's the first listed action of the good shepherd. And it's repeated here five times. You may ask yourself the question, why is this the first thing we're talking about? I think it's a reminder of the very initiative of God. The initiative of God. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that you and I, in our acts of rebellion, in our separation from God, did not go seeking God. God sought us. God took initiative in order to secure us, to redeem us, to save us, to call us to himself. John 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He said that it was God's love toward us that prompted him then to uh, send his son to die on our behalf. And that was while we were in our rebellion. Paul speaks to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. And he says God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet Sinners, while we were yet in rebellion and active resistance, while we were uh, working actively and were at enmity against God, while we were doing that, while we were thumbing uh, our noses at God, while we were spurning his name, while we were cursing him, Christ died for us. God took the initiative to reconcile us and to restore us to himself. 
And this being the first characteristic that Jesus mentions here in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life. That's the first thing he mentions to remind us, if you know God, it's because God took an initiation to know you. Notice what he says about laying down his life. John 10 and verse 17. He says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Friends, some would say, man, Jesus came to die. And that's true, but he came not only to die, rather it was to satisfy God's judgment of sin and then to demonstrate to demonstrate that he accomplished that through the resurrection. So it's better to say that Jesus came to die, but he came to die and rise again. Because if Jesus just died and was dead, you and I would have no confidence, we would have no uh, understanding, we would have no reason for believing that our sins were in fact forgiven. But when he rose from the dead, when you're dead and then you're not dead, then everything you've said has been punctuated and affirmed. And it's very clear that whatever you said was said by someone much different than us and must in fact be true. So here's what he said. He said, I lay down my life and if I lay it down, I lay it down so that I may take it up again. Jesus came to die, but not only to die. That's evident again in verse 18, John 10 and verse 18. Jesus said, no one has taken it, my life, away from me, but I lay it down. Here it is, on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. In this we see and understand clearly that Jesus possessed the will, the initiative to die on our behalf and the means, the authority to atone for sin. He possessed both the will, the desire and the means in order to accomplish that. And when he did that, he did that not because he was backed into a corner, because we somehow tricked him into it, because he was somehow obligated after we sought him out. He did it because of his great love toward you and I. Now, friends, Jesus is a great example. You look at his life, you'll see how to live a life that brings abundance. He's a great comforter. He's a tremendous peacemaker. He was a great leader. And he was concerned about the condition of those who were suffering around him. But none of these qualities define his purpose like that of the good shepherd atoning for our sin. He's more than an example. You could just be a good dude and be an example. When you sit down and you look at his purpose, his purpose was to atone for, to do the one thing that you and I desperately needed done but could not do ourselves. And yet he did that on our behalf. He atoned for our sins, sins in the past, sins present, and sins we don't even know about yet. And yet Jesus has already taken care of all of those things. Why? Because he loves us. Because of his desire. Not in response to your cute adorableness, but simply in response to the will and initiative within himself when he exercised the means in order to atone for sin. Any picture of Jesus as an example is incomplete apart from his atonement. And any salvation, any redemption, any restoration, any reconciliation that's trumpeted above the salvation or redemption or reconciliation or restoration that takes place when sinners are reconciled to a holy God 
completely misunderstands and mischaracterizes the gravity of sin and the sufficiency of his redemption. In other words, if we said, man, Jesus died that hungry people could eat. He wants hungry people to eat. But he could have just simply sent them to K&W cafeteria to get something to eat. He gave his life to reconcile the loss to himself that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's his preeminent commitment and purpose that's demonstrated for you and I. And nothing could be celebrated above that. If it is, we've misunderstood just how bad sin is and how good the good shepherd is. But it's not only Christ's sacrifice, though, that's so amazing. Notice, secondly, the very knowledge of the good shepherd. The knowledge. What does Jesus know? And when does he know it? How does he know it? John 10 verse 14, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Now, the way that Jesus knows us is it's a very deep, personal and intimate way. The Greek word that's used here is the Greek word gnosko. And it speaks of an experiential knowledge. It's different than the other common word in the Greek that's translated in the New Testament, the word oida, which just speaks of a knowledge of facts. You can have a knowledge of facts and not have an experiential knowledge. The scripture says that Jesus says, he says, I have experiential knowledge of you. I have intimacy with you and my sheep have intimacy with me. That's different than just having knowledge about. You know the demons had knowledge about Jesus. They knew facts about him. When Jesus stepped out of the boat on the, on the shores in Gadara at the, at the tombs, the Bible says that a demon-possessed man came and prostrated before him and the voice of the demon, some 2,000 of them, how do you know there were 2,000? Because there were 2,000 pigs that committed piglet Harry Carey right over the edge of a cliff when that demons got exiled out of this man and into the pigs. So there's 2,000 demons in this guy. And when they got to Jesus, here's what they said. What have we to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Have you come to torment us before the time that's coming? The demons had oida of Jesus. They knew the facts about him, but they did not know him intimately and personally. Their lives had not been changed by him. They were not Christ followers. They were not worshipers of God. They knew facts about, but they didn't know him intimately. They're like a lot of folks in eastern North Carolina. I mean, they may have been in church since Moby Dick was a minnow. I grew up in church. I grew up in the primaries. I got all my check marks and everything. Went to a VBS, said a prayer. No big deal. Been going to church. I go at least Christmas and Easter and every funeral and wedding I get invited to. Every once in a while I'll go to extras. I may teach connect group. I may do this. I may do that. I have knowledge about Jesus. I know all the facts. Can recite the 66 books of the Bible. I can do all of those things. Yeah, but do you know him? See, there's an experiential side of intimacy that Jesus says he knows about us and and his people know about him that's different than just possessing information. Jesus equates this kind of gnosko with the relational intimacy that he has with the Father. You are in John 10 and verse 14. Drop way down to verse 15. 
even as, he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, even as, here's the comparison, even as the Father gnoscos me and I gnosco the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said the intimacy that you and I have with him is the same as, it's even as the intimacy that the son has with the father. Well, how close and intimate and personal and known is the father and the son? You mean the three persons of the Trinity that are all one God? You mean the union and the unity where they are, they are co-equal in every way? They are all worthy of the same wor- worship? They are all deserving of the same glory. They know the same things. They're co-eternal. They're, they're, they're co-omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. They're everywhere. All, you mean that kind of intimacy? Jesus said the same intimacy that the Father and the Son have, Jesus' people have with Jesus. Now, that's incredible. But it speaks of this close personal connection. How personal is that? Some years ago, Jody and I, we're traveling in South Asia uh, doing missions work. And like many mission trips, uh, we found ourselves at the end of the trip getting to take our, um, our, 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 our sightseeing day. We have different names for it, but it was the day where we got to go to things. And oftentimes when we travel overseas, we'll go to the different events or, or locations that are of significance in the country where we are. This time we chose a large temple that was in the city we were in. And as we're going to this temple, it was, to, it was a special religious day, I guess, because there were throngs of people making their way. They had little lays of, of flowers and orchids and stuff. They had cups of milk. They had bread. They had all these sacrifices. And all. As they're making their way in to go worship this giant statue of, of nothing. But what caught our attention and broke our heart, she began to weep as we were watching this, was right outside the temple there was a pig idol. And people were lined up forever to worship this pig idol. Now listen, I've got a strong affection for pigs in the form of bacon or pork chops. You get the idea? But that's not what this was. This was a giant statuesque formed creature. And here's the heartbreaking part. As these people would come up, they would bring these offerings hoping to appease the pig idol. And they would bend down and they would whisper in the pig's ear, hoping that the pig would hear them and then would know how to minister to them and what needs to meet. And you could hear them bringing out wails of lament. You could hear them casting out concerns and prayers that they had, hoping that somehow this string of orchids that they brought would somehow tip the, tip the scales and that this pig would pay attention to them, knowing that that pig could not ever answer them. That pig was ignorant, deaf, and dumb. That pig was inanimate. It was not living. It was simply a statue that was there and it could never know anything. It could never have intimacy with them and they could never have intimacy with it and that is not the kind of God I serve. I'm here to tell you that some people would say well if you're religious today you're, you're worshiping an idea or an ideal. You're hoping that there's a God somewhere who hears you. Uh-uh friend I'm not hoping anything. I know what I know. I know who he is. I know he knows me. And I know that knowing me, he knows my greatest needs. And he's met my greatest needs. He knows me. 
He knows us intimately. He even knows our names. John 10 verses 2 and 3 we looked at last week. It says, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. How intimate do you have to be to know them by name? John 10 verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He calls them by name. You know that pig statue never called anyone by name, nor the cow statue, nor any of the other statues of weird hybrid elephant people. They never called anyone by name. Jesus calls you by name. Just like he did with Lazarus in John 11, we looked at a few weeks ago. In verse 43, when they went to the graveyards and Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha protested and Jesus said, remove the stone and you'll see the power of God. And having wept, he looked in and he called into the grave, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 43 and 44, when he said these things, he cried out loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus called out the man by name, his friend, the one he knew, and he called for him to come. If Jesus said, hey, you, dead person, come out, he would have upended every cemetery within the sound of his voice. Because every one of them would have had to respond to it. But he reached down and he said, you, Lazarus, you, come forth. And Lazarus moved. Why? He knows him intimately. Just like he knew Mary intimately after the resurrection. And Mary comes back to the tomb. And she's hoping, hoping to just anoint his dead body. She's hoping to spend one more moment of privacy with him. And when she finds the tomb empty, she's distraught. And Jesus speaks to her. And she doesn't get it yet. She thinks he's a gardener. She thinks he's there with a weed whacker to clean up around the graves. And she said, just tell me where you put the body and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she responded to it. It's, it's in John 20, verse 16. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbanai, which means teacher. She knew him and he knew her and he knows you. And y'all got some creative names now and again, but not only does he know them, he can spell them right and say them correctly, even Aiken. He even knows how to say Aiken, that it's not Aiken's, Aiken, or Atkins. It's Aiken. He knows it intimately and personally. He knows you in every single way. He knows your past. He knows where you are today. And he knows about stuff you don't even know about about coming tomorrow. He knows how you're going to resist and reject him in days ahead. And yet in eternity past, he laid down his life for the sheep that you might have redemption and be restored to him. He is a good shepherd. Furthermore, not only does he know us, but this knowledge is one that is enjoyed for eternity. He knows us for eternity and we know him for eternity. It's not conditioned on our actions or our ability or on our power, but on his. John 10 verse 27 to 29. 
Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We read that. Verse 28, and I give them eternal life. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Do you see how emphatic Jesus is about this point? I give them, I have the authority to do it. I give them eternal life. That's not a quality of life. That's a, that is a, a, a measure of time that says it goes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I forever and ever and ever give them life. And then in case we might argue and go, well, maybe that's just till the warranty runs out. Jesus says, and they will never perish. They will never, 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 never. I'll give them life forever, ever, ever, and they will never, never, never perish. And no one has the ability to even steal them, to snatch them, to take them out of my hand. He is emphatic because he knows that we might miss the security of this statement that Jesus says, I got you. And nothing's going to change that. And oh, by the way, just so you might think you could arm wrestle me out, the Father has you in His hand and no one is able to snatch Him out of the Father's hand. So here's what He says. He says, it's, it's like this. This is an eternal promise. It's forever and ever and ever. And it is never, never, never able to be undone. Not by you or by anyone else. I've had folks that have said to me, now, Chris, you're a Baptist, and in, the, in y'all's Baptist church, they usually like to say it like that, or if they're from down south, they'll say Baptist. I don't know where they get the extra syllable. It's weird. But they'll say, you're in a Baptist church. You believe in this thing called eternal security. Where do you get that from? I'm really creative. I mean, I make it up and just, I'm just, I was looking for, no, I read well. Because I don't know any other way to, to define eternal than eternal. And I don't know any other definition for never but never. And I don't know anything other than I can't but I can't. I can't undo what God has done. And when God draws someone to himself, they become his. And Jesus says, you can never, never, never lose it. You may, hey, listen, some of you right now, need to pay attention to that because you've been thinking, you know, I would know I was a Christian when I was such and such. But that was before I did this and did this and did this and did this and did this. And I know God's got to be put out with me now. I know what that conversation's like, friend. I had that conversation with him. I've been there. I've been in the spot where I finally said, God, I know I can't keep a promise a day. Just save my family and I'll suffer through it. And he said, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just. You are unfaithful, Chris. But I'm faithful and just to forgive sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And those who are mine, those who I gnosko, not oida, gnosko, those who I am intimate with that I know, they will never, 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 ever, ever snatch you out of my hand. If it weren't for that, I'd be sunk. Now, some of you are thinking, why am I listening to a guy who's got so little confidence in his own holiness or such a clear perspective of what sinfulness really looks like and how far it taints? 
Jesus' knowledge of us is substantial. He knows our past, our present, and our future, and he secures us eternally. That's a humbling thought. Well, Chris, if, if God really saves you for eternity, what keeps you from living like the devil? That's a fair statement. I'm glad you asked. Uh, here it is. The Bible tells me I won't live like the devil. God works all things together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew. He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He predestined for them to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's what I know. God said, that's not an option for you. I'm going to shape and mold you to look like Jesus. And I'll use everything in the arsenal to do it. That's good news. But here's the second thing. Why would I want to live like that? Listen, when it was easier in the first service when she wasn't in the room. But when Jody said, I love you and I'm going to be with you forever. I didn't say hot diggity dog. Now I can live like the devil. I said, you love me? I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I mean, you know me. I have a mullet. I mean, it's back a day or two. But I mean, honest to goodness, why would you love me? She's like, I don't know. But I do. Listen, that just provokes me, prompts me, drives me to want to demonstrate my love for her. And if that's true among two imperfect, messed up people, how much more true is it when the Son of God demonstrates his love toward us and says, I know you in ways no one else ever will. And I love you enough to die for you. How much more might I want to live in a way that honors him? That's the picture that's there. Not only the sacrifice and the knowledge of the good shepherd, but y'all need to listen faster or you won't get out by lunch. Number three, the purpose of the good shepherd. Yeah, God does know us by name and he calls us and he saves us and he secures us and he's good and that's all good. I got it. But what's missing in that narrative of goodness is the word purpose. Because see, if saving us was simply about giving us peace and abundance and blessing, why wouldn't God just take us on to heaven? Why wouldn't you say, Lord Jesus, save me? And he says, Whack, there you go. You're in heaven now, floating around on clouds, playing harps, hanging out with angels, watching Clemson football on rerun 24-7. Why, why wouldn't he just do that? Why leave us here in the midst of all of the stuff that we go through every single day? Why, if all he exists, if the only reason he saved you was to give you some kind of peace and blessing and fix you ice cream every night and make you happy, if that's all there is, wouldn't that go better in heaven? It would, but he didn't save you for all of those things alone. He saved you that you might bring glory to the Father. Jesus said, John 17, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life. By the way, he said he gave us eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life, Jesus defines, is our knowledge, our intimacy 
with, with the Father. Eternal life is to know God the Father and His Son. Verses 4 and 5 of that same chapter. Jesus said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus said, I spent my life bringing you glory. And they now know eternal life, which is you. Now, God, glorify yourself through them as they do as I've done. Jesus' work was to make the Father known, reconciling sinners to himself. And that's how the Son glorified the Father. We, in like manner, are to glorify the Father and the Son by doing the same thing. How? By making him known. Because in that is eternal life. By the way, that's the Great Commission mandate. That's the part of the story where we join God in God's reconciling work. Because it's about more than just us. John 10 verse 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus said very clearly, there are sheep that are not yet in the sheepfold. Wait a minute. Some people have said that the Messiah was just for the Jews. He's a Jewish Messiah. He came to the Jewish people. He was there for the Jewish people. One day he would come back and he would set the Jewish people in political power and they would be in charge of things and they would rule the world and everybody else would be subservient to the Jewish people. That's interesting. It's just not the Bible. The Bible says, Jesus said, I have come and I have sheep that are not yet of this fold, but they will be. And that's good news for you and I, because we get in that way. Jesus came for both Jews and Gentiles. He came for men and women. He came for black, brown, and white. He came to make us, the scripture says, one flock with one shepherd, not two flocks, not 10 flocks, not a hundred flocks, but one flock, one people with one shepherd, one God, one name that is above every name that we're to worship together. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your family background. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And here's what he said. He said, if I am raised up, if I am lifted up, I will draw all bends unto myself that you might come and find life and find hope and find truth at the foot of the cross because he would make us one flock with one shepherd. Galatians 3 and verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's made possible through the gospel. Paul said to, Roman, to the Roman church in Romans 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Some wonder, well, why would God save me? Why would he want me? I mean, I'm a mess. I've lived a life of flagrant rebellion. Friend, it's so that he would be seen as he is and he would be glorified as one who is both gracious and merciful. And so that our own boast would not be in ourselves but in a great gracious and merciful God who made it possible for us to be reconciled to him. To be redeemed not by our power but by that shed blood that we've sung about this morning. And by the way, 
your wretched, reckless, crazy story of rebellion is somebody's lifeline. Your story becomes the instrument of hope in someone else's life. Second Corinthians chapter 1, God said, Paul said, the Lord said through Paul, paraphrased, with the comfort God comforted you with, you use that to comfort others for the comfort of God through you is sufficient to comfort others in their need of comfort. In other words, your messy, crazy life is an encouragement to somebody. They're going to walk away and go, I'm, at least I'm not that bad. Or they're going to walk away and go, there's hope for me. God saved you so that he would save others through your story. And he empowered us for the mission with a promise. John 10 verse 16. I have other sheep, Jesus said, which are not of this fold. That's a statement of fact. Now catch this. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Do you see the resolve of the Savior and the certainty of his mission? See, when we prayed for the Lockadives this morning, we're not praying for them and saying, man, I hope God, I know we probably haven't paid attention to this, but he didn't know there were 61,500 Lockadive people out there. He didn't realize that. I mean, they don't worship him. They're Muslim. They're no, he didn't know about them. No, no, he not only knew about them, he said there would be Lockadives surrounding the throne of God one day giving glory to him. And he invited us to be part of how they come to know him. He invited us to be a part. It's not a question of whether or not it's going to happen. Friend, it's going to, I must get to my sheep. I must bring in these sheep that are not yet of the fold. I must, he said. By the way, you could fast forward to John's vision in Revelation and you could see that there are in his vision, looking into the future, there are peoples from, hey, not some, but every tribe, every tongue, every nation bowed down around the throne of God, giving glory and honor to him as they're prostrated before him, declare not one of them got there on their own, but each one of them got there through the one shepherd who gave his one life to make them one flock and he would be the good shepherd and the great commission's about joining Jesus in that redemptive work he's promised us power in the gospel he's promised us his presence in the mission and he's promised us his victory as sheep hear his voice and will respond therefore if he must be about this work then in fact as followers we must be about this work what do you do with that? Well, it reminds, it reminds us that whoever you are, there's a plan for you. Whoever you are. Yeah, but I didn't grow up in church. I was 50-something years old before I became a Christ follower. Happy birthday. It's a new day. You start there. Whoever you are. Yeah, but I've blown it. I've done it. If you knew the wickedness I was involved in. Paul said he was the chief of all sinners. And that there must be a reason for that. That God would use him to write half the New Testament. And be the greatest missionary church planter. That the world has seen apart from Jesus himself. And he was the biggest mess of all of them. If he's telling the truth. Whoever you are. There's a plan for you. If you're a believer. A sheep who's heard his name. Who. Who. When he called you, you yielded to follow him, then you have a purpose to reach sheep who are not of his fold. And if you've never received him 
and if you don't gnosko him, you oida him, you know about him, you got all the facts down, but you don't have that intimate, personal, real, tight knowledge of him, then you need to know his grace and his love and his sacrifice is sufficient for you. And now is the time when you can have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Because he made it so, not you. He laid down his life for you so that you'd believe. And then he took it up again so that you'd know. He sees you and he calls your name. And when you're in your least worthy condition, he said, I love you. I want you. I've paid the price for you. Come to me. You know what he didn't do? Choose for you. See, here's what he never turns us into little robots. He never takes over our brain, our will. We're not the Borg. We're not sucked into some collective thinking where God makes us do the things he wants us to do. He says, come to me if you're weary and burdened. Come to me if you're broken. Come to me if you know it's lacking. Come to me if you're unsettled. Come to me if you're anxious and I'll give you rest. You can trust me. I was dead and then I wasn't dead. Or as we say in Eastern North Carolina, I was dead then I won't dead. I'm trying. Come to me. It's not good enough to know about it. You got to know him. But if you'd be willing, he's already shown he's willing. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.